Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your Archduke of Nightmares, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes confusing things, crazed cops, and space evils. Come over to my brother's house where we can hang out, drink beer, fight some demon ants, and talk about horror movies. Number one, Things, 1989, directed by Andrew Jordan. Doug and his wife Susan can't get pregnant, so they enlist the help of a mad doctor named Lucas. Doug's brother Don and his friend Fred go over to Doug's house to hang out. They watch a video of Dr. Lucas and his assistants killing people. Susan dies and a bunch of demon ants burst out of her stomach. Fred disappears, so Doug and Don continue to hang out while occasionally dealing with demon ants. Doug is killed by the ants. Fred comes back and kills a bunch but dies. Dr. Lucas shows up and doesn't believe the demon ants are real. Don leaves Dr. Lucas in a room with a bunch of them and leaves the house. Dr. Lucas, his assistants, and demon ants are the killers. To the best of my understanding, that is the summary of the movie Things which I have now witnessed. Things ended up on my long list of movies after it was put on my radar by a half-in-the-bag episode where Red Letter Media covered it. Some of the really bad movies they bring up are mostly boring with a sprinkle of redeeming entertainment, so I was hesitant when choosing Things as a movie for my weekly Monday Horror Watch Party, Blood and Bone. Thank Barry J. Gillis I did. Things is a technical disaster. It's not shot well. It's bizarrely cut together. Every single person's acting is terrible. The score ranges from puzzlingly ill-fitting to repetitive noise. Oh, and 95% of the dialogue was dubbed since most of the audio recorded during filming in the house was unusable. There are bad movies that are so terrible they are entertaining. A great example is Troll 2. Things towers over Troll 2 as the true best worst movie. Things is baffling. Things doesn't make any sense. Things is just, well, things. And somehow, Things pulls you in and puts you under its thrall. For a movie where there isn't much of a comprehensible plot, it's criminally entertaining. Two brothers grabbing a flashlight and inspecting a bathroom for demon ants shouldn't be as compelling as it is. Nothing of importance even happens in the bathroom investigation, yet the bizarreness of the whole charade somehow makes it interesting. Here are just a few things that happen in... Things. Randomly, the action in the house will cut to 
80s porn star Amber Lynn, who's reading off cue cards pretending to be a newscaster. A painting that's said to be a rare lost Picasso is shown over and over again. Doug puts a dead butterfly in one of the multiple sandwiches that randomly materialize. Don eats and enjoys the butterfly sandwich. Fred is torn to pieces and has most of his flesh on his face chewed off, but he's still conscious. Doug is given a demon ant baby from a naked woman wearing a Satan mask. Dr. Lucas removes a bunch of some random guy's body parts. There is so much baffling material in things. Some of the gore that's included does look legitimately disturbing and gross in places. This is mostly due to the fact that the picture quality is horrendous. When a man's throat is slashed by a machete in the beginning, it looks a little too good. I don't think I unknowingly aired a snuff film on my weekly watch party show, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out the creators of things actually killed someone. Pet warning, a dog dies off screen after tussling with what I assume was a demon ant. There's a little blood splash to show the dog bit the big one. It's not disturbing or anything. It's ridiculous. The entire movie is ridiculous. Something this shoddily slapped together has no right to be as entertaining as it is. Things is a perfect movie to watch with a group of friends. Should you warn people you somehow get to watch it with you about the contents of the film? I think a disclaimer is a good idea. As long as your couch pals know what they are getting into, I can't see anyone not having an amazing time with things. All you need to do is go in expecting to experience things and nothing else. Number 2, Snatchers, 2019, directed by Steven Cedars and Benji Kleiman. A girl named Sarah does the deed with a guy she's into named Skyler after he comes back from Mexico with a heightened desire to bang. Sarah is fully pregnant the next day. She hits up her old friend Haley for help. At a free clinic, Sarah gives birth to a monster that instantly starts killing people upon shooting out of her body. Sarah is still pregnant with another monster, so the girls go to see a guy named Dave for help. Before Dave can help kill the monster inside Sarah, a cop shows up and arrests everybody. The monster shows up at the police station and kills all the cops but the one that made the arrest. The monster then possesses Sarah's mom, and the monster inside Sarah is born. The two monsters run off to mate. It's revealed that Skyler was sprayed by a strange Mayan gas in Mexico. Sarah and Haley go to a party where they think the monsters will pop up. Haley and Sarah defeat the monsters and save Sarah's mom. The sex monsters and the police are the killers. People that are possessed by the little monster are still alive. The cops fill at least one of the monster's hosts full of holes. Snatchers is a movie that has a lot of hilarious moments on paper. When it comes to what's actually presented, parts work here and there, but some things don't end up working. It's an execution thing. For a movie with ridiculous concepts, most of the insanity and action feels flat. It's impossible to single out one area that causes this. The cinematography is basic, the score is bland, the acting isn't terrible, but the way it was captured doesn't work at all. Sarah is played by Mary Neppy. Neppy isn't bad, but she needed to bring more energy as the lead to compensate for the technical shortcomings. Haley 
is played by Gabrielle Elise, who falls into the same trap. A decent performance that needed a bit more oomph due to how poorly it was captured. I did like Rich Fulcher as the weird alpaca farm owner Dave. Fulcher added that little bit of camp that was needed to shine. Austin Freiberger also brought a good level of energy to Skyler, even though he was a bit more one note than everyone else. One of the funniest things in Snatchers is a video Skyler took during his vacation to Mexico where he's messing with his dad who's just trying to go to the bathroom. It's such a bizarre inclusion, but it's presented in a much more comedic manner than a lot of the amazing on-paper jokes in the movie. One example of the latter is when Sarah and Haley are warning partygoers that effing aliens are coming. When effing aliens are brought up, Snatchers cuts to the two aliens literally going at it. And when it's warned that the aliens are coming, well, you get it. On paper, this back and forth should be hilarious, but the energy was all wrong. That's not to say that there aren't some good laughs in Snatchers for every failed joke about Haley not wanting to see so much of Sarah's butthole. There are solid jokes like the girls having to use multiple severed arms of the police to open a fingerprint scanner, or when a girl that constantly brings up her mom forcing her into gymnastics throughout the movie is possessed by one of the aliens who uses her body to acrobatically dropkick Haley. Sarah saying they need to go to plan B to defeat the pregnant alien is another example of a great on-paper joke that isn't delivered in enough of a tongue-in-cheek way. Snatchers seems to be self-aware, but it doesn't take things far enough. If you're looking for a new horror comedy, Snatchers is far from the worst you can do, but it squandered a ton of potential. Turns out it was originally a six-minute short. I can't think of any shorts to features that didn't come out mediocre. Greener Grass and Necrotronic were strong shorts that didn't hit the mark at feature length. Maybe short to feature attempts are doomed. Number 3, Dead Heat, 1988, directed by Mark Goldblatt. A lame cop named Roger and a cool, pervy cop named Doug are trying to bring down a ring of robbers that appear to be zombies. Their investigation leads to a facility run by a man named Loudermilk, who recently passed away. At the facility, Doug finds and is attacked by a zombie amalgam, and Roger ends up dead after he's locked in a decompression chamber. Roger is brought back to life with the facility's resurrection machine. Roger only has about half a day to live again, so he decides to continue his police work. Roger and Doug chase leads, Doug is killed, and Roger eventually figures out a close friend named Dr. McNabb is involved. Roger is captured, but is able to escape and crash a meeting held by Loudermilk, who's still alive due to the powers of the resurrection machine. Dr. McNabb resurrects Doug to fight Roger, but Doug pairs up with Roger instead, and Dr. McNabb and the machine are destroyed. Loudermilk, Dr. McNabb, their accomplices, and zombies created with the resurrection machine are the killers. Wait a minute. Roger only finds out that Dr. McNabb is involved because of a clue Loudermilk left behind. Why would Loudermilk leave that clue when he was actually behind everything? If you're a dead heat aficionado and it wasn't Loudermilk that left the blood numbers in the lamp, let me know. Why was the secret message even left as numbers 
It was already hidden. It would have been way easier to write Dr. McNabb in the blood. Dead Heat has one of the best character introductions of all time, and it's definitely not the introduction of the lameness that is Roger. It's Doug's entrance. We're introduced to Doug as he's grooving hard in the passenger seat of a sporty red convertible. Doug is amazing. It's mind-boggling that Doug isn't the main character. He's jacked, has a mullet, wears a leather jacket, is a jokester, and a bit of a pervert. That last trait is probably what barred him from being the protagonist. Here's the most egregious instance of Doug's uncontrollable perviness. He wonders if reincarnation is on the table for himself and Roger, and says he wants to come back as... The seat of a girl's bicycle. Doug, I don't think you can be reincarnated if you're sentenced to an eternity in horny jail. Think that through even a little bit. No one is riding their bike 24-7. I'd say a majority of people with bikes ride them for a short while before letting them collect dust somewhere. Yes, my bike is currently covered in dust. The only logical reason there is for Roger being the main character is due to him being portrayed by Treat Williams. The man named Treat has to be the lead. The only other movie I've seen that has Treat Williams in it is The Empire Strikes Back. Turns out he's a random rebel soldier in it. Wait, he's also in Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous. And Dave Franco cuts off an arm, aka 127 hours. Even after watching Dead Heat, I doubt I'd be able to pick Treat Williams out of a lineup. He's boring. Joe Piscopo played Doug. I'd recognize him anywhere. In Dead Heat, he kind of looks like an overly muscular, mulleted version of Joe Lo Truglio, who plays Charles Boyle in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Vincent Price randomly shows up as Loudermilk. He was amazing as always. Needless to say, pretty much all the acting is campy and hammy. There's a character named Rebecca that says she's Loudermilk's daughter and only does PR for the zombie-creating facility. Since Loudermilk fakes his death, he sends Rebecca a videotape. It starts with him saying he's going to explain everything. Before the tape can be watched by Rebecca, Roger, and Doug, some zombies interrupt the watch party. The trio deals with the zombies and goes back to the living room where the tape was playing and are able to catch the end of it. None of them consider rewinding the tape and watching it in its entirety for answers, even though they all watched the intro where Louder Milk basically said, Let me give you all the answers. Roger and Doug are stupid. Rebecca is revealed to be a zombie herself who Loudermilk was helping to keep alive, so it makes sense that she wasn't really trying to help the cops. She ends up decaying and the whole sequence of her falling apart with her flesh falling off her bones as she's turned into a skeleton and then becomes ashes looks almost perfect. Time lapse, practical effects makeup, and a touch of bad CGI is used for the normal human woman to pile a dust transformation. The CGI only really comes into play to have Rebecca's still flesh-covered head talk for a bit before she becomes a chattering skeleton head. 
It would have been funnier if all the lines she delivered as a head came from the skeleton instead of the lines being shared with the flesh face. All the zombie gore and weirdness, like when a guy named Thule uses a resurrection machine he has to make a bunch of dead animals in his meat market come to life to buy some time for him to escape, are executed practically and well. Before I forget, pet warning. When the zombies stop the VCR party, they shoot up Rebecca's aquarium, which results in the death of all her fish. I know, I know, it's tragic. If you don't think about the plot, which isn't really all that important in this zombie cop movie, Dead Heat is an entertaining time. It does lull here and there during exposition dumps, but the zaniness of the action sequences make up for it. Why didn't Doug shoot the window in the decompression chamber to save Roger? Just, just don't think about it. Number 4, Psycho Goreman, 2020, directed by Steven Kostansky. Mimi and her brother come across a sealed coffin. Mimi randomly pushes buttons on it, which unlocks the coffin, and releases a gem that was on top, which Mimi takes. An evil alien is unleashed. Mimi is able to control the evil alien with the gem, and names him Psycho Goreman. Hijinks ensue. Pandora, a Templar that is trying to protect the galaxy from Psycho Gorman, shows up to stop him. Pandora is defeated after Psycho Gorman is given back the gem. He spares Mimi and her family and goes on to wreak havoc. Psycho Gorman, Pandora, and Mimi's brother are the killers. Pandora kills a human to make a disguise, and Mimi's brother technically kills a guy that Psycho Gorman placed in a stasis for all eternity by knocking him over. The guy is thankful for the sweet release of death, but the brother still killed him. I've been anticipating Psycho Gorman for months, a movie that takes the fun of Power Rangers and pumps gore into it. My brand! I hope Gored Up Sente action becomes its own genre. Psycho Goreman, or PG for short, was written and directed by Steven Kostansky, who's part of the Astron 6 production company. I haven't seen a ton of Astron 6's work, but I did watch The Void, a Lovecraftian practical effects movie that Kostansky had a big part in creating. I watched The Void under the worst possible circumstances, on a plane ride home from Vegas with a brutal hangover. I didn't like The Void, but I think I might like it a lot more on a rewatch. I'm rambling about Astron 6 because after seeing Psycho Goreman, I feel obligated to go back and look at the production company's other projects. Sure, Kostansky wasn't the mind behind everything, but like-minded people usually group up. The humor in PG is top-notch. From the ridiculous gore to the deadbeat dad to the kids using a knocking language to talk to each other, PG is hilarious. The acting is campy and over the top. Nia Josie Hanna plays the main human character Mimi. Her performance will definitely be seen as grating to some, but the ridiculous overacting and mannerisms fit perfectly in PG. Adam Brooks has impeccable comedic timing as Greg, the dad. I'm seeing that he's in almost 
all the Astron 6 stuff I haven't seen, which means I'll be covering Father's Day, the editor, and Manborg in the near future. The real star of Psycho Goreman is the practical effects work. Stars? There are some mediocre-looking CGI blood explosions and space battles, but the cheesiness of the small bits of CGI are funny. Most of the gore is done using practical effects. Heads are ripped off, people are turned into mindless husks, a small boy is turned into a giant brain. The only thing better than the gore are the myriad of wacky character designs that are all practical costumes. That's where a lot of the Power Rangers flavor comes from. Well, the costumes and the explicit use of the Power Rangers theme guitar solo that's playing during the first game of Crazy Ball in the movie. No one tells Saban. It sounded note for note to me. Speaking of audio related stuff, the audio mixing wasn't great, but I'm starting to think that's because I watch almost everything on my ancient TV that has to be over 15 years old now. If it ain't broke, don't replace it, right? Even though my TV is probably the culprit, it was hard to hear dialogue at times, so I'd turn up the volume only to be deafened whenever an action sequence would take place. This isn't an issue that only relates to PG, though. Again, might just be my prehistoric TV. Psycho Goreman is fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. It's goofy in all the right ways. I highly recommend checking this one out. Number 5, Extraordinary, 2019, directed by Mike Ahern and Enda Lohman. A woman named Rose, who has the ability to help spirits pass on, meets a man named Martin who's able to be a conduit for spirits. His dead wife Bonnie has been haunting him. Martin's daughter Sarah is placed under the spell of a one-hit wonder Satanist musician named Christian Winner, who's trying to complete a ritual that requires a virgin sacrifice to reignite his music career. Everyone ends up at Winner's Castle, but after Sarah is lowered into the depths of hell, she is thrown up by the demon Astaroth since she's not a virgin. Astaroth starts sucking Rose towards the hole since she is and the ritual must be completed. Martin saves her with a quick shag, and Winner is taken to hell instead. Bonnie gives her blessing to Martin and Rose and moves on. Three months later, Rose turns down a marriage proposal from Martin. Christian Winter, his wife, and a garbage truck driver are the killers. His wife wakes up the first virgin Christian was going to sacrifice, which caused her to explode. There's a flashback where Rose's dad is run over by a garbage truck that totally could have stopped. Extraordinary isn't. It's easy to point out where it went wrong. Will Forte and Claudia O'Doherty. They play Christian and Claudia Winter. Both performances are bland and boring. Every time the story checks back in with what they're doing, the fun disappears. Both are painfully one note. A Satanist one-hit wonder musician who's trying to get back on top is an interesting character that can easily work. Any comedic actor with any sliver of range would be able to make Christian Winter the star of the movie. Will Forte does the same performance he does in everything. I did enjoy him in MacGruber, but his presence weakens pretty much everything else he's in. I don't understand his success at all. Since I 
don't know all that much about him. I thought maybe he's a great comedy writer, but he doesn't have any amazing writing credits. Before starting Extraordinary, I psyched myself up to give Will Forte a chance, and he let me down as always. Even though I disliked Forte's performance, at least he attempted to bring energy to the role. Claudia O'Doherty didn't even do that. You know who did great in the Irish horror comedy? The Irish people. Barry Ward is delightful as Martin Martin and all the different characters he's possessed by, especially his dead wife Bonnie. He does a hilarious job of switching between Martin and Bonnie. The real standout by far is Maeve Higgins, whose performance of the sad sack Rose Dooley is fantastic. Her comedic timing was on point throughout the whole movie. I'm obligated to bring up that she looks like a drag queen named Lawrence Cheney, who's currently competing on the second season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. You may find the movie funnier if you know who Lawrence Cheney is and say her name throughout your watch. The dry humor shines through with the Irish actors, and whatever humor they were going for with the Winters didn't work at all. More gripes? I gotcha. Parts of Extraordinary are presented as old VHS tapes that feature Rose's dead dad. Adding a little bit of distortion to the bottom of the footage and calling it a day doesn't hide the fact that your movie was shot on a current day high definition digital camera. If you're going to include a VHS bit throughout the movie, you can easily film the sequences on an old camcorder, or at the very least, use some decent VHS filters. Astaroth looked awful, his design was a lanky demon with a sheet thrown over him to make him look like a ghost, all of which was done using CGI. It looked dreadful. The score is good though, it's a simple synth score that really fits the aesthetic of the film. There's a lot of solid framing as well. Christian Winter and his wife stopped any chance of extraordinary being enjoyable. It's a shame because the rest of the movie is fun. If you are ever making a movie and think you need a big name star to help get eyes on it, do not under any circumstances choose Will Forte. Number 6, The Wolf of Snow Hollow 2020, directed by Jim Cummings. People start dying in a small Utah town. Officer John is trying his hardest to catch the killer. The clues make it look like the killer might be a werewolf. More murders happen. John's daughter is attacked and his dad, the sheriff, passes away. John falls off the wagon and the kills are pinned on a local man with a wolf tattoo and exotic knife collection after he's found dead with a body in his yard. John goes to people's houses to return items collected as evidence. He visits Paul Carnery, a local taxidermist, and realizes he's actually the killer. Paul almost kills John, but John's partner Julia shows up and saves him. Paul is killed. Julia becomes sheriff, and John's daughter goes to college. Paul Carnery and a man with a wolf tattoo are the killers. This is my first Jim Cummings experience. I know he did a movie before this that was well-received called Thunder Road, in which he plays a weird divorced cop that has a breakdown. He wrote, directed, and starred in Thunder Road and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, where he also plays a weird divorced cop that has a breakdown. He's typecasted himself? Well, his performance is John, the weird divorced cop that has a breakdown, and Wolf Snow is hilarious. He's got great comedic chops, 
when it came to the more serious scenes, it didn't seem like he really knew how to turn off the funny man, though, which made some of the moments that would normally elicit sadness just feel downright awkward and bizarre instead. John is the driving force of the movie. Sure, there's a killer on the loose, and the scenes in which people are attacked by what appears to be a giant werewolf are great, but some of the best parts in Wolf Snow are John struggling and fighting with pretty much everyone. If Jim Cummings played Christian Winter in Extraordinary, there's a very good chance I would have recommended it. Before moving on, Ricky Lindholm and Robert Forster are the biggest names in Wolf Snow. They're both solid. This was one of Robert Forster's last movies. He chose to do the project because it was a dramatic movie about a father-son relationship and complications of aging and health. The first attack in The Wolf of Snow Hollow doesn't show the killer. Animal sounds are heard and the aftermath is shown, but the movie doesn't explicitly spell out whether or not it was actually a werewolf. Until the next kill where a woman is attacked and killed by what very much appears to be a werewolf. It was surprising that the possible werewolf was shown so quickly after the first attack, but it worked incredibly well. The attack scenes are beautifully shot, and the werewolf, which ends up being a really tall dude in a homemade werewolf costume, looks incredible. The lighting in the werewolf sequences is stellar. The werewolf is always shown the perfect amount to keep the mystique while also making it intimidating. Wolf Snow is a gorgeously shot movie. It's also technically a New Year's horror movie. The New Yearness isn't front and center though. During the first couple kills, the werewolf man steals body parts from his victims, so it seemed like there was going to be a reveal that he was making some kind of freaky human body part doll, a la May, a movie in which that happens, but not much time is spent on Paul Kernery and his motives post-reveal that he is in fact the killer. Multiple times throughout Wolf Snow, the time on John's microwave is shown. I was sure it was going to be revealed that he was losing time himself and was the werewolf, but that didn't end up being the case at all. Maybe the microwave clock was supposed to be symbolizing his alcoholism in some respect. The Wolf of Snow Hollow is a solid horror comedy that entertains throughout. Check this one out. Number 7, Resident Evil Village 2021, directed by Morimasa Sato. Uh-oh, it's the seventh topic. Resident Evil 8? That's not even out yet. It's not? I haven't ever played a Resident Evil game. I'm not sure why I've never played one, but the answer to that is probably because most of the games were PlayStation exclusives and I never owned a PS console. Why am I bringing up Village? Well, I was reaching for a seventh topic and think that Resident Evil Village looks insanely cool. There isn't a ton of information known about it, but there have been some trailers. There's a freakishly tall woman that appears to be the leader of a bunch of other weird hooded women. The tall woman can make long sharp claws shoot out of her fingertips. I pretty much decided on talking about Resident Evil 8 here just so I could bring up how cool this tall woman character looks. Imagine ending up in some big spooky castle in the middle of nowhere. Now imagine that a giant woman with murder on her mind is pursuing you. She's such an interesting concept for a villain. Normally you'd expect the thing that is chasing you to be some weird zombie abomination or 
fiendish monster. But the thing you're running from being a tall, fancily dressed woman is so far from the norm. I really dig the game's aesthetic from what I've seen so far and think I'll give it a playthrough if my computer can run it. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 89, Confusing Things, Crazed Cops, and Space Evils. If you liked what I was putting down, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. If it doesn't let you, it might if you restart your phone. I'm happy to say that Psycho Gorman rocked. I was going to definitely be in a weird funk if it was a letdown, so biaw! The 90th episode of the podcast will be out on February 7th. Until then, make sure to steal items from dangerous beings that make them follow your every command so they can't brutally murder you.